0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good to see all of y'all. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, we're going to take one more week off of the Judges series, So, uh, and there's reasons for that. The main reason being my, my dad, who's the pastor in our Wilson campus, is still in Turkey right now. I'll be in prayer for him as he's visiting our missionaries there. Uh, but he flat out doesn't want to miss any of the Judges series to preach, so fine with me. I'll take a, I'll take a one-off, and I wrote this one all by my lonesome, y'all, so we'll see how this one goes. Uh, this, is, this is straight in my wheelhouse, the kind of stuff that really interests me. And, and I, I figured since uh, we spent last week celebrating the resurrection, the whole point of Easter is, is this idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the most important thing about the gospel. The most important thing. And because of that, I wanted to spend one more week really trying to dig into the evidence for this. Uh, Some some call this type of work apologetics. Uh, Apologia. It's not like to apologize. It's more about to defend one's faith. In fact, this type of of information is really better for believers. Um, It can sometimes convince people Uh, But the best thing about this is to strengthen your faith. And that's my goal this morning is perhaps you come in today and you're not so sure about this Jesus thing. You're not so sure about this gospel. Maybe this will convince you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that will happen. Uh, But more than anything, believer this morning, I pray that this gives you confidence and assurance of the things that you've put your faith in. And... It's so important that we dig in on this thing we call the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. Here's how Paul put it. This, how, this is how important this is. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And, and your faith is in fact in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection of Jesus, the risen Lord, is the the linchpin of our faith. It is the most important piece. And if I can, by the power of God this morning, convince you or affirm this for you, it would be to my delight. This whole day is this idea of eyewitness. So we're going to take on the scripture in a way that maybe is a little different than we do week in and week out. We're going to look at this like detectives. We're going to pretend for a moment we've all got on law and order together. We're all on CSI, whatever, Miami, Timbuktu, whatever one CSI they're on now. And we're going to try to discover the eyewitnesses. We're going to try to discover, like any good detective, what the evidence is. What are the facts? What's real here? And what should I do with that? What is the verdict I should make based on that evidence? And so let's dig in together. as We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians 15 today. And I want you to see these eyewitnesses as I see them, as, as many throughout history have, have made the discovery through, through investigation that Jesus really did the things he said he did. The, the history of it is true, and that's a blessing to me. Peter wrote in his, one of his letters, 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were... Eyewitnesses of his majesty. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have some doubts about the gospel. You have some doubts about your faith. Maybe you ask questions like, is this really credible? Is this reliable? The things that I I believe? The things I've heard from perhaps from my parents or friends or those people at church. Are these things true? Maybe, maybe you're here with a friend or a family member in this Jesus. To you is just another myth in a world of myths like Zeus and leprechauns and mermaids. And some of you will tell me later, there really are mermaids. Okay. (laughs) Easter bunnies, all that cool stuff. All that stuff that we make fun of, really. Jesus just fits into that. Maybe that's where you are today. Perhaps you're struggling with some kind of doubts about what you believe. And I hope today that you will see that the gospel is not only reliable historically, but it's reliable for your very salvation. And that should be great news today. In the apostles' first letter, apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he reminded them that the reliability of the gospel should make their faith firm. And we can have a faith that stands firm as we hold fast to this same reliable gospel. So let's dig in together and I believe we're going to see the text give us three ways the gospel causes our faith To stand firm. Just a few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this Now I would remind you, brothers, let it be that to you today. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now stand, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Number one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Number two, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Number three, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one To one untimely born, he appeared also to me. God bless the reading of his word. Amen? Amen. What's Paul's objective here? It's much like ours this morning. It's to try to convince you, to try to give you the eyewitness testimony, to try to give you the facts and let you make the decision. Who is this Jesus? Who is he really? I, I, I fear sometimes, church, I have to admit this, I fear that people might come to my service for years and years and this Jesus is something that we sing to, that we, 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 we kind of have on our, our periphery at times, but the facts that he actually died for my sins, the facts that he actually rose from the grave, the real implication of that on my life doesn't seem to really matter. That, that, that's just something we kind of put aside on Sundays and it doesn't impact Monday through Saturday. That really concerns me. And, and I know that I also have the temptation to just put this thing, this faith thing, on the shelf. And every, when, I only, when I need it, I might get it down. But it's not the thing that just impacts every part of my life like it should. Because, friends, church, if this is true, that the Son of God died for us And that he really did raise from the grave. That he really appeared to a bunch of people and still does it now. If this is true, our lives should be wholly different. There there should be nothing about what we were that's the same. Because we are so convinced and so changed by this truth. And I pray that over my own life. I pray that over yours too. Here's the the first way of, of three that the reliability of the gospel causes our faith to stand firm. The first is this. Since Jesus died on the cross, we can believe that he paid for our sin. We can believe it. There's a lot of reasons for that. I want to give you a few things, and we're going to be looking at the positive. This is going to be interesting, I think, for some of you. I hope this is interesting to most of you. And and I'm I'm going to look at both what the Bible says, but also what some of the naysayers are saying about these kinds of issues. I find this stuff fascinating, and I want to address it today. First, Paul comes out and says, I want to remind you, this is something I've been telling you, but it never gets old. Believer, I got news for you. We should never tire of the gospel message. We need to hear it almost daily, probably daily. God died. Christ died for you. He cares for you. You're his son. You're his daughter. He rose from the grave. This stuff matters today. Not just Sunday. It's going to matter tomorrow. On Monday, when you don't want to go to work, it matters. Jesus loves you that much. That's the gospel. That's at the heart of the gospel. So he says, I want to remind you of that, and I want you to stand firm in it. That's in verse one. I want to remind you that you're being saved by that. Now, that word isn't the sense that our salvation is incomplete, but rather the, the process of Him making us holy. This has the, the connotation of sanctification here. Uh, the, the, the Greek here has more the idea that as we walk with Christ, we are sanctified. You are being saved. That is, you are looking more like Jesus all the time. And as you do that, you hold fast to what? You hold fast to this gospel which I preached, and I'm about to unpack it again. Here it is. Number one, Christ died. Why? For our sins. Plain. Plain English. Plainly put here. Christ died. He was slain. Paul does not deny this at all. Now here, I want to present some things to you that I find fascinating. And in fact, I had a conversation this week with someone about these very things. It's like, Lord, the Lord was like, I can't wait for you to preach Sunday. I'm going to go ahead and let you test this out this week on some people you haven't seen in a while. And I got to deal with these very issues that people have with the death of Jesus. Now, did you know that some believe Jesus wasn't crucified at all? Um, in fact, that's quite popular in some Middle Eastern religions, that Jesus wasn't crucified at all. In fact, it was a case of mistaken identity, that there was a man who was crucified that kind of looked like Jesus, but it was an imposter. It was an imposter, Jesus. Now, that's, that's odd, um, and that's, I mean, that's one way to try to come at it, and maybe maybe that's somewhere you've been. Uh, many authors talk about this, but I want to present to you uh, a couple of problems that I would have with this. First of all, every narrative, including some extra-biblical material, says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Who who are my mothers in the room? Uh, There's a lot of you, right? Do you think, after spending 33 years or so with this boy, you would be confused about his identity? Is that even remotely possible? Uh, I find that very, very hard to believe. This must have been his twin that Mary didn't know about. That's, that's a bold claim. I, I think, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you something here. They like there's there's often the the, the negative to miracles, the, the opposing side to anything that happens in life that's miraculous. People will say, well, you should always take the simplest answer. The simplest solution is often the true one. This is the idea of something called Occam's Razor, that you should always whatever simplest is most likely true except for in this case because the simplest answer is that was really Jesus and Mary really believed it the problem is there's miracles involved so they say, well that's too that can't be so you have to out you have to totally set aside the miraculous but what if what if miracles are true some of you may have observed them in your own life what if this is real Mary certainly thought that was Jesus I In fact, more scholarship says that Jesus really died on the cross than than not. Uh, This is one of the things I read this week, and I had a bunch of books I meant to present to you, not that any of you, one of them is like this thick. I'm weird. I like to read like mega books about the resurrection because I want to be convinced. Even though I already am, I want to be more convinced. And uh, Mike Lacono in writing on this, He says, Jesus' death by crucifixion is attested by a fair number of ancient sources, both Christian and non-Christian alike. Guys like Josephus and his Roman historians like Tacitus and Lucian and Marabar Serapion. These are several of the people writing about this fact that Jesus really died. We, we like to make modern claims, oh, Jesus was a myth or Jesus really didn't die, but all the ancient history says this was a real thing that really happened and he really died. Here's another claim. Maybe Jesus wasn't really crucified because he never really existed at all. This is all just a big myth. I love what people said about this. I read several articles about this because I find this strange, but there's really no serious historian anywhere who believes this. In fact, F.F. Bruce, when writing about it, says, Some writers, they may toy with the fancy of a Christ myth, But they do not do so on any grounds of historical evidence. The historicity of Christ is as axiomatic for an unbiased historian as the very historicity of Julius Caesar. That means if you can believe in Caesar, you absolutely should believe in Christ. It is not historians who propagate the Christ myth theory. The very Encyclopedia Britannica, this one blew my mind. It says, these independent accounts prove that in ancient times even the opponents of Christianity never doubted The historicity of Jesus, which was only disputed for the first time and on inadequate grounds in the end of the 18th century. This is a very modern opinion to think that Jesus is just a myth. Now, why did he die? Now, this is this is where you really run into some things. Okay, he died. Cool, fine. This dude died. That doesn't mean anything for me. Okay, some dude named Jesus died a long time ago. You're telling me it's for the sins of humanity. And that is, in fact, what Paul is arguing here. It's what Jesus argued for in his personal testimony. It's what the disciples believed. It's what the first century believers really, really believed. They were willing to stake their lives on this, that Jesus died for their sins. This word sin here is hamartia, which means to miss the mark. It's an archery term that really means you've totally missed the target. And those are the things that we do often. These these missing the marks, the the way that God has created us, missing the marks. What God designed us to do. Well, some argue this. Okay, Jesus died. But maybe, maybe he wasn't meant to die. Maybe it was a mistake. Do you know there's a whole church denomination that believes this? This blew my mind this week. Y'all, I'm still learning. This is awesome stuff. There's this church based primarily in, in, in Korea called the Unification Church. You, if you, maybe you've run into these people. Sometimes they call themselves Moonies. Um, I don't know if I'd want that term. That sounds odd to me. Um, But anyway, this is what they believe, that Jesus' overall mission was not to die. His overall mission, in fact, was to become a father. His mission was to get married and establish a righteous family, which Adam was supposed to do but failed. And then Jesus, according to them, also failed. And that the third Adam, which is the return of Jesus... Which we somewhat agree with them, there will be a return of Christ, but they believe it's so he will finally make a family and establish a holy, righteous family. That one one blew my mind this week, that there's a whole denomination of of church people that believe Jesus failed. Wow. That's a whole nother level of, of difficulty for me. That that you would look at the story of Christ and say, He failed. This neither lines up with Christ's teachings, nor does it the whole of Scripture. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says this, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This is what Jesus believed about himself. At no point does it say anything about Jesus trying to get a wife. It's not in there. That's some Da Vinci Code weird stuff, right? It's fiction, my friends. It's fiction. The truth is Jesus knew from birth the purpose of his mission. And it was a very difficult purpose. And he always knew that. Paul writes, in fact, that the death of Jesus and the death for our sins was in accordance with scriptures. Now, I got to ask you this what scriptures would the Apostle Paul be talking about? Here he is writing to the Corinthian church somewhere in the 50s AD. Do you know how many scriptures of the New Testament had been written at this point? Maybe none. Maybe none were in circulation yet. Many think Mark might have been the first gospel written, perhaps Matthew. But either way, we're talking late 40s AD, maybe early 50s. So if Paul is talking about Scripture, he's not talking about the Gospels. He's talking about the Old Testament. That means the prophetic word, the Old Testament, has always been projecting a Messiah who would come and die for us. Okay, is that true? Well, there's a lot of places I could take you. Here's the main one. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It goes on later in that chapter. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now this is one of many. This is what Paul is referring to. Jesus was prophesied. This thing that occurred was meant to happen. That means that not only Jesus knew what his purpose was, this was God's purpose from the fall of man. This was God's purpose when he realized, when, well, at, in his design, he knew already, I'm going to have to save these people. They're not going to be able to save themselves. This is God's plan. Jesus knew exactly what he came to do. And if that's true, okay, okay. Let's say Jesus was real, not a myth. Let's say Jesus really died. Let's also say that this thing... That he believed he was dying for our sins? That's true too. Do I I believe him? Do I agree with him? Now that's the ultimate question. That's the part you you and you alone can decide. Does the evidence cause me to believe? But I want to ask you a few questions. Why would an innocent man suffer torture, terrible torture by whips, a cruel death by crucifixion? Why would an innocent man do that? Why would would he take punishments? In fact, why would they even have punished him this way? Those were punishments meant for treasonous, violent criminals. Why did Jesus receive such beating? Why was this man convinced that he must die in this way? And instead of running away from it, ran straight in to the people who hated him the most, to a place where he was in the most danger of Jerusalem. You would think... If he had no intention of dying, he would not have gone to Jerusalem. But he knew very well what was coming. So the question is this, and and here's what I've found in all of my conversations, and I would encourage you with this too, church. Any conversations you have this week or in the future, you will find that people like Jesus. They like him. He's a good dude. Seems like he took care of people. He liked the hungry. He he took care of the widows. He, he He was for the poor. He was a prophet even, maybe. He, they like him. But I got news for you. You can't like him if that's all you think he is. Because if that's all you think he is, then he is an absolute madman. He's insane. If Jesus is just a man and not Lord, he's an insane person. Because he made sure that he got himself killed. And it was for nothing. What was its purpose? He didn't come to just help people and help the hungry. Those things are great and they're wonderful stories and there's something there. There's a reason he did all of that. But the primary purpose of Jesus Christ was the cross for you. And if you don't believe that piece, then he's a madman. Don't call him good. Either call him great or call him insane. He's not anything in between. This, this question, these questions, I think, they raise the most important question is, can we really know anything about the past? Can, is there anything historically that we can verify? F.F. Bruce, when talking about it, he mentions Julius Caesar. You want to know something fascinating? The archaeology and the history and the stuff that you can unpack about Julius Caesar, there's a lot. Do you know there's just as much, if not more, for Jesus? The, archeolo- the archaeological finds, the writings, both, both biblical but non-biblical as well. There is a ton of evidence that this Jesus died on the cross. A ton. And yet, no one doubts that Caesar was real. And yet Christ is a myth. I find that fascinating. I also find that just false. <laughs> Jesus had to die. This is the truth, my friend. If you're a skeptic this morning... If you're unconvinced, I want you to know something that's true. And there are absolute truths out there. God is real, sent his son for you, loves you enough to pay the penalty of your sin. Here's what Paul writes later in 2 Corinthians. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's why he did it, and he did it for you. Believer, he did it for you. The evidence is that Jesus believed he was sent by God to die for the sins of humanity. And Jesus died by Roman crucifixion somewhere around 33 AD. That happened. His disciples, as well as a growing number of people, believed that Jesus died for their sins, for all of humanity, to the very point of their own demise. They were willing to be beaten even to the point of death. These disciples truly believed it. The question is this. If all of that's true... What will you do with it? Who is he to you? What do you believe? Did Jesus die for your sins or not? And if he did, what are you going to do with that believer this morning if you believe that? Shouldn't you be living a little different tomorrow? Shouldn't the rest of the day look a little different? Why do you cling to your guilt? We as believers, it's fascinating. We struggle to forgive ourselves. We, we, we remain in our guilt and our shame. Things we have done in the past, we can't let them go when Christ has already... He, he was crucified for that. Why are you clinging to it? Release it as He has. Live free and unto His glory. Here's the second way, and Paul paints this pretty clear. Since Jesus rose from the dead, we can believe that He gave us eternal life. Since Jesus rose from the the dead, we can believe that he gave us eternal life. Paul makes it very, very clear here that he was buried and he was raised again, also according to the scriptures. He really did die. He really was buried in a tomb. He really did get up. This stuff's real. It's not myth. It's not something we get in here. What are we doing at church if we just think this is fairy tales? This is reality. And we stake our claims on it. Now, here's the thing. Most agree that the tomb was empty, but very few agree on why. Very few agree on why. Here's one, a main claim that you'll find, and maybe you've run into this with, with friends and family. Okay, the tomb was empty. Maybe someone stole Jesus' body. Maybe someone stole the body. Now, I'm going to paint for you a couple of problems with that of that theory. First of all, there was a lot of people in Jerusalem that wanted to, to quell this whole rebellion. Okay, this Christian thing had become a problem in the city, had become a problem in the area. They were, they were powerful enough to get this man crucified, beaten to an inch of his life and crucified and killed. If they were powerful enough to do that, you think they weren't powerful enough to protect the body, first of all, in the tomb. And just so you know, they put Roman guards in front of it and in a really heavy stone. But if that wasn't enough, they certainly had the power to discover and produce the body. But there's a lot of other problems with this. Let's say it's stolen body theory. This is one of those theories, stolen body theory. How, first of all, did they overcome the Roman guard? The disciples, if you read the story, were completely demoralized. In fact, only one of them even came to the cross. The rest scattered. Peter denied him. They were demoralized. You know what they wouldn't have done? Fault Roman soldiers to retrieve the body so that they could believe something, they now doubted themselves. Even John, who was at the feet of Jesus, was doubting the truth of Christ's claims. They would not have fought. And even if they did fight, (laughs) even if they did do this, they would have known all along he was dead. I got got a question for y'all. If... You thought the man was dead. You knew for a fact, in fact, that Jesus was dead. There was no resurrection. How willing would you be to go and be crucified upside down for that? I just wouldn't be that willing. I, I, maybe, I, maybe I'm faithless. I don't know. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave and I stole the body, I'm hiding. I'm hiding because my only pursuit at this point is fame. I just want to be famous because i would made this happen, but I don't really believe it. That's the logical conclusion. And if the body was, in fact, stolen, how then does Jesus keep showing up alive? And i got news for you. This doesn't just happen in the Bible. There are appearances in other other writings you can find. People seeing the risen Lord. Paul, for instance, writing the book of Corinthians. If you know anything about that guy, he didn't really care for Christians. Wasn't a fan. Was trying to stop this cult. And yet he believes with all of his heart that Christ appeared to him and was willing to die for it. Okay, sure. Well, maybe not a stolen body. How about this? Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. The wrong tomb theory. Okay. They went to the wrong tomb. They were all very sad. The women were sad. And this is really, you're going to love this argument. This is the argument. You know, women make mistakes sometimes. Y'all love that, don't you? (laughs) This is the argument, though. You know, when they get really emotional, they make mistakes. They probably went to the wrong tomb. They were just so disheveled. And yet the problem is, even even if that were true, there's this story of the disciples running. They all thought it was this tomb, and it wasn't an unknown tomb. In fact, the Bible records it as the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, a brand new tomb. Everybody in town knew where Jesus was buried. Everybody. They went to the wrong place. And that would be pretty easy to fix, wouldn't it? These powerful Jewish leaders would say, You guys are just dumb. It's over there. Go look in there. There he is. Come on. They went to the wrong tomb. And that still doesn't convince me as to why in the world Jesus keeps showing up. Doesn't fix that problem. Doesn't fix Paul or James, the brother of Jesus, who were neither of them believers. Yet they believed he was risen. Here's the third one, and this is the one I keep running into. This one's great. The apparent death theory or swoon theory. Anybody heard of this? The apparent death theory or swoon theory. This is the idea that Jesus didn't actually die. That they buried a man who was at the verge of death, maybe in a coma. Now, I just want you to think logically for a moment about this. This is a reasonable theory. If if your main goal, is your, your biased goal is this thing cannot be true because the only way you come to that place is, I I have to prove that Jesus did not rise. I have to prove it. Therefore, I need to start with the point of, why is the tomb empty? Well, the tomb's empty because the dude didn't even die. Here's the problem with that, though. I've never been beaten like this. I've never experienced any of this, but To my knowledge and everything I've studied, this cross thing was extremely effective. In fact, the way in which they treated Jesus was even more so. The Bible records that he was beaten with the cat of nine tails. That he was flayed and laid open. That most likely, and this is graphic and I'm sorry, but it's true. That most likely they had exposed his back ribs. That his flesh had been removed. He was in a great deal. A pain, the, the, the amount of pain that would probably kill you in, in spite of this, if untreated, would kill you. And then he carries the cross on the back, on those wounds, all the way up a mountain, stumbling, barely making it. Then they nail through his feet, through his wrists, into the bone. And the problem with this isn't just the pain. It becomes extremely difficult to breathe. Asphyxiation is the cause of death at the cross. I don't know if you've heard this before, but that's true. Because if you can imagine having something driven through the tops of your feet, and I broke the top of my foot one time, and I can tell you right now, that really hurts. That hurts a lot. I was out of commission for a little while. But to drive something through there, and the only way you can breathe is to push up on the nail driven through your foot so you can catch your breath. Because as you begin to compress, the more you compress, the more you cannot get air in your lungs. So you have to push up. And eventually, the agony of that becomes beyond measure. To where you can't do it. You can't do it. And they come to Jesus. They come to all three of the men there at the cross. Two of them are still barely hanging on. What did they do? They broke their legs so that they can no longer even lift. Because this was Passover weekend, normally they would have left these men hanging, which is even more graphic and terrible. Uh, But they... They couldn't over this weekend because it was Passover weekend, a holy weekend in Jerusalem, and they didn't want people hanging up on the hill of Golgotha during their celebration. So they requested the Romans go ahead and end them and bury them so that they could continue the Passover weekend. And they come to those two criminals, and they take a mallet and break their legs. And they died pretty swiftly after that because they could no longer lift to breathe. They come to Jesus. He wasn't breathing. Okay, I don't think we need to break his legs. He's not moving, he's not breathing. They take a spear, they thrust it into his side, and it's the Bible's records that water and blood came out, which means his lungs had already filled up. He had already died of asphyxiation. That's how Christ died on the cross. Okay, somehow Jesus appeared dead. Somehow he survived a thrashing, a crucifixion, a spear to the side. They buried him in his tomb, and somehow, this Jesus rolled a stone away, a very heavy stone. John wicked a couple of Roman guards. Let's say he did all that. And then came to his disciples. Now, look, if I went through all of that, Nevada, and I came up to you afterwards, and you've, probably, you've seen a few people beaten up, right? You've seen some people been through some stuff. If I came to you missing some skin on the back of my back, a big hole in my side, got holes in everything, and I'm like, Dragon in there like a zombie. Are you going to believe that I rose from the grave? Or that by some chance, you might think this, you might think, man, that Jesus has a really high pain tolerance. I mean, this is amazing. That would be a feat. But I don't think anyone would believe he raised. <laughs> Full body lacerations. Where did Jesus go? And if that's true, didn't Jesus eventually die? And the people he appeared to looking like a death warmed over? Wouldn't they have been caring for him and taking care of him? And eventually this Jesus would still die, probably pretty quickly, because the medicine wasn't so good then, and he had really been beaten. Would the people then have gone on, the disciples and all these many people who saw the risen Jesus, would they have gone on and died for him, believing that he rose from the grave? No, he was a zombie for a few days, and then we had to bury him anyway. And how does that explain Paul? How does that explain James? It doesn't. No, Paul's right. He died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. He rose from the grave. The empty tomb is impossible to explain. The fact that we, the disappearance, the complete disappearance of Jesus is difficult to explain. But Paul says it was all planned. It was all according to the scriptures. And yet again, these aren't the scriptures, the new scriptures. These are the old. Look at Psalm chapter 16. He says, For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow the Holy One to rot in the grave. This was one of those prophetic words Hosea also very clearly says after two days he will revive us on the third day he will rise up he will raise up raise us up in fact this is what Jesus had been this is what the Messiah was to do resurrection therefore my friends it means eternal life for us Jesus says this himself, John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. He actually got up. He actually did it. He's risen indeed, which means you have eternal life. You can really believe it. It's true. Have any of y'all ever caught... You ever called a child lying? ever happened? I find mine lie a lot. I don't know if it's bad parenting. I don't know what's going on at my house. They lie a lot. And they will deny the truth for a very long time. Some of them more than others. They'll almost take it to their grave. They will deny the truth. Even we know, me or Nicole, we know they did it. Because it's in, it's just in their mode to do this thing. Like if, if this thing goes, some, let's say someone spills a bunch of junk in their bathroom, gets mess everywhere, there's only two people that did that. I have four kids. It makes it more challenging to, to decipher the culprits, all right? I'm constantly playing detective at home. But if it's something like that, I know it was either a Kenzie or a Brielle. And I can tell really quickly who it was just by facial expressions and behavior. But they will deny it and deny it. Until I raise the bar of punishment. Okay. Until, because I'll get them together. Until one of y'all tell the truth, you're both in trouble. You're both grounded for the day. You're both whatever. And if that doesn't work, I just keep amplifying until finally it's like, okay, okay. I will not deny the truth anymore. I will tell you the truth. And when they tell the truth, we can finally move on. But I've noticed this trend. It's Kids aren't the only ones that do this. Adults will deny truth for a very long time, especially if it's to save face for themselves or to protect somebody. But it's often selfish because I don't want people to think. So I need to lie. I need to lie. I'm not really sick today, but honestly, I just don't want to go to work. I'm not sick. I'm I'm, I'm calling in slick. That's what I'm doing. And we do that. People do that. I've done that. But I've noticed as the punishment rises, and this is true with humans, if you raise the punishment, the truth will reveal itself. Okay. You don't want to tell the truth. You might lose your job. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. I was having a bad day. Made a mistake. You start raising the bar and suddenly people will reveal the truth. Now let's, let's use that logic on first century believers for a second. These people... Peter, James, John, Paul, and a great many more were willing to be beaten terribly, tarred and feathered, which is a crazy thing. Boiled, John was boiled. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. James was either thrown from the temple or beheaded. Either one, he died. All of the disciples died this way except for John. And then the list goes on. You can go back and check church history. This is an interesting stuff. Like Go back and look at the first century fathers, the people who were close. Guys like, this is a wonderful name, guys like Polycarp. That's a crazy name, right? He died for his faith. He's one of the disciples of John the Beloved. Ignatius, Irenaeus, Tertullian, all these early guys, they're dying for this thing. Why? Why? My kids, I can tell you right now, if I raise the bar enough, they're going to go, okay, okay. What does that mean? These people really believed it. They really believed it to the point of death. The evidence is this. Jesus believed he would resurrect. The tomb of Joseph where Jesus was buried was found empty after three days. The body of Jesus was never produced, has still never been produced. Every year Time Magazine puts something, something, something out at Easter time. We think we found the grave. And every year they're like, eh, maybe. They can't produce the body. They never have. And the disciples, as well as a great growing number of others, believe Jesus had risen from the the dead even to the point of their own death. So what's the verdict? Did Jesus rise or not? If he did rise, what does that mean for you? Shouldn't that be life-changing that the Son of God died for you and rose from the grave, meaning you have eternal life? I would ask you then, what sort of circumstances in your life right now are defeating you? If eternal life is in play... How are you being defeated? How, how do you feel often that you don't have victory when Christ has already defeated your greatest enemy? It's over. The battle is won. Live like it. And here's the third. and The, the most interesting of them all, since Jesus appeared after resurrection, we can believe that he is our living Savior. He is our living Savior. Now there's some fascinating things here. The word appeared is four times here in the back part of the text. The appearances are to several people. First to Cephas, and if you see that name, you're going, hmm, I don't know. That word could be pronounced Kephas, which means stone. It's another name for the apostle Peter. You see him called that in some other places in the Gospels. This is Peter. It would seem that Christ first appears to Peter and then quickly after to the twelve. It seems that somewhere... On the road to Emmaus or somewhere in there, Christ appears to Peter. This is what Luke chapter 24 has to say about that. It says in verse 36, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. (laughs) So they're there. The disciples are terrified. They've locked themselves away. Everybody's out to get them. They're, They're thinking about fleeing Jerusalem. This is a real problem. This is a catastrophe. Jesus has died. We were wrong. They're there worrying about that and what happens. I think every once in a while, Jesus just likes to spook people. This is kind of a, something cool he does here. He just has a sense of humor, one or the other. It just says, look at the text. He just stood among them. They're just sitting there talking, and all of a sudden, here's Jesus. Can you imagine that terror? Jesus suddenly stands among them, and, it sa- and he says to them, Peace be to you. Here's a sentence unnecessary in the text, but they were startled and frightened and thought they'd saw a spirit, or some version say a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He just pops in the room. Wow. Paul then records that he appears to 500 people at one time. 500 people at one time. That would be quite a spectacle. Some large group worship service where the risen Lord shows up. One commentator writes on this, that this appearance was probably on the mountain, Mount Tabor in Galilee. He had appointed this place, a remote place in Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 28 says that Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is what he tells the women. As they left the tomb, tell them to go to Galilee. They're going to see me. The brothers being a great number of people in this case. It says, then that he appeared to James. This isn't James the disciple, the brother of John. No, this is James the brother of Jesus, who I, for me, is one of the most convincing arguments that Jesus really did rise from the grave, that Jesus really is the Savior. I find James to be extremely convincing. And the reason being, I have an older brother. Jesus was James's older brother. I got news for you. What it would take for me to believe that Stephen was the Savior of the world, my brother Stephen, would be massive. I mean, it would be massive, the proof. Because that, that dude used to beat me up when we were little. Hey, I've seen him do and say some strange things that were not Savior-like. I spent my whole childhood with this boy. There's no way apart from resurrection, apart from him coming to see me personally, that I would believe it. James believed he showed up in the flesh. and He knew. He believed. James is great evidence to me. And James had been a skeptic along with his other brothers. James writes one of our New Testament books as well as Jude. These are brothers of Jesus that go on to be apostles. It's amazing to me their testimony. And James, it says in the book of John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers, these are those brothers, and he had a few They said, why don't you leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles? You can't be famous if you hide like this. (laughs) They thought he was just trying to be famous, right? So if you can do such wonderful things, go show yourself to the world. Why? Because even his brothers didn't believe in him. That's what John says. James is a skeptic who becomes willing to die for his brother because he believed wholeheartedly he was the Savior. And then lastly to Paul untimely born. He says, I was born out of due time. (laughs) I was born in a funny way because I was on the road to Damascus to kill a bunch of Christians and then Jesus shows up and changes my whole trajectory. He is one of the most convincing eyewitnesses of all because anytime your accusers then become your allies, that is a great strong claim. So here's here's what you often hear about all of this. Okay, let's say Jesus died. Let's say the tomb was empty. Let's say that somehow they either stole the body or he ventured off somewhere and died somewhere else. If these people were really willing to go to the point of death for Jesus, maybe, maybe the only way that this happened, because we've got to completely discount miracles. There's no way Jesus really is the Son of God and really died for us and really rose from the grave. I just can't believe it. So instead of that, since they were convinced, they must have been hallucinating. That's one of the growing theories. They were hallucinating. All right, there's a lot of problems with that. (laughs) A whole lot of problems with that. First of all, there's never been a recorded hallucination in a group. They've never had this happen. People hallucinate all the time. In fact, you can do it. (laughs) You want to hallucinate, I wouldn't recommend it, but just stay up for several days don't get any sleep for a while. This happens to truck drivers all the time. This happens to people who just, for whatever reason, don't get rest for a while. They'll start to see stuff. The other night, I was trying to fall asleep, and I swore a spider was about to land on my forehead. I ruined my wife's sleep. She never did get back to sleep after that. I never found this spider. I don't know if it was real or not. I do know this. I had stayed up till like 2 or something in the morning, drinking soda like a bull, and Had a moment. Some of you had this. Okay, hallucinations. They're real. They're not wrong about that. The problem is, never before have two or three people been sitting in the same room and hallucinated the same thing. That's never been recorded. And Paul says he appeared to 500. That is an amazing hallucination. I'll tell you this, it's impossible. That's just not, that's not possible. And more than that, it does not explain Paul. Because why would you hallucinate? Well, You might hallucinate if you were restless, which the disciples were. I'll grant you that. They were probably uh, you know, hungry, probably in a bad way. They were seriously discouraged. They were fearful for their life. Those are all categories for why they may hallucinate. But Paul was none of those things. In fact, he was winning. He believed his mission to be true and pure, and he was on the move. No way. James is like, well, of course my older brother died. That guy was insane. He thought he was the Savior and he got himself killed. This guy's hallucinating. Hallucination. Here's the problem with all of these theories. And there are more. I couldn't cover them all with you. I've, I've run out of time already. It'd be a lot of fun to cover them all. At the end of the day, you have to take this approach. There's no way you can ever convince me That Jesus died for me. There's nothing you could do. No evidence that he rose from the grave. In spite of the fact that the evidence is great. So the the decision is in your hands. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. Did what he said he did. And that he has saved you. And that he's alive today. If that evidence is true then it's life changing. And that's the problem. Most people don't want life changing news. Our living Savior now, here's the truth. Christian this morning, our living Savior holds the keys of death. Revelation chapter 1, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. This is our Jesus. Our living Savior now has complete dominion over all things. Ephesians chapter 1 says, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. This is our Jesus. He is alive. And he is ruling I want to give you one last piece of evidence, maybe you would say this is the weakest evidence of all, but it's evidence nonetheless. And there's a modern phenomenon that some are calling the dream or vision phenomenon. Believe it or not, for decades and this is I pulled this from an article. It says, for decades, a well-documented phenomenon has been occurring in the Muslim world. Men and women who, without any knowledge of the gospel, are contacting. Christians in their community having experienced dreams and visions of the risen Jesus. We're not talking a few. We're talking thousands of these incidents over the last several years. This is happening in the Middle Eastern world. This is happening in the third world. These people are approaching believers, missionaries in their cities because God showed up. Because Christ Jesus, for whatever reason, has shown himself to them. That's really amazing. And maybe that's not convincing to you, but it's been convincing to thousands of people who were really far from God. The evidence is this. Jesus disappeared somehow. His body's never been found. The disciples and a bunch of other people, even skeptics, even enemies of Christianity, believe they saw the risen Jesus. All of these witnesses were, in fact, willing to die for it. So Jesus then really did die for your sins. He really did rise from the grave. He really did grant us eternal life. He really did appear to many people over the centuries, even today. Jesus is alive. He has authority over all things. Non believer this morning, if you've come here, a skeptic or doubting, put your trust in the Savior. Believer this morning, have confidence. This gospel thing is not only good history, it is reliable for your salvation. Don't doubt it any longer. Put your assurance in it. Jesus paid for your sins, gave you eternal life, and is alive today. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Not only for the great gift of Jesus, but the ongoing gift of Jesus to us. That not only did he die for us and take on the sins that we could do nothing about, Many of us, in fact, didn't even know we were in such a bad place until you showed up and revealed it to us that we were far from God. And you saved us. You set us free by your love and by your sacrifice, and we could not accomplish any of those things. Lord, first of all, I'm so thankful for your son, Jesus. And I'm still, I'm I'm continuing to be thankful for him because even now, even still, I see Jesus walking the pages of my Bible. I see Jesus when I unpack the word of God. I'm so thankful for your word to me. I'm so thankful that I can experience a a conversation with you, God, in prayer. That I know you are listening. That, God, I know you are a part of my life. And maybe I don't always get the things I ask. In fact, right often I don't because I don't always know what to ask. And yet I'm I'm comforted that Christ Jesus is alive today. That he wants really what's best for me even when I don't know what that is for myself. That he hears me when I, when I speak. He hears me even now. He knows my thoughts. He has dominion over all things. He has dominion over sickness and death. He has dominion over uh, my, my bad finances, my good finances. He has dominion over it, good or bad, mountains or valleys. Jesus has dominion. That is great comfort to me today. Eternal life being the most comforting thing of all. That no matter what I'm facing now. Even if the end is near for me, I don't know what tomorrow holds. That God holds my future. He holds the keys of hell, of death, of the grave. Christ holds the keys. That is amazing comfort to me. Dear friend, if you come here today and you've not put your faith in Christ Jesus yet, there's no reason to wait any longer. I pray that the Holy Spirit has convinced you today that Jesus not only came, was not only a real person in history, but way more than that. He is your Savior. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the grave to give you eternal life. He is the risen Lord. He is alive and active in your life today. If you believe that this morning, if you've been convinced of that by the Spirit of God, I ask now that you would make a faith claim, that you would make a confession of faith today. This first begins, of course, in your heart and in your mind. But Paul does write in Romans 10 that if we would confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will, be, we will be saved. And I just want to give you an opportunity to make such a confession. Pray with me, my friend, if that's you. Jesus, I believe you are my Savior and my Lord. Jesus, this morning I'm convinced that you died on the cross for my sin. For my shame, my guilt, my brokenness, I've made plenty of mistakes in this life. But Jesus, you have paid for them already. God, I believe you raised Jesus from the grave. And that gives me such hope for the future. I believe in the cross of Christ and the resurrection. And I'm asking now, Lord, would you save me, set me free, and now guide my life for the future? Guide my steps from this moment on. Help me to live tomorrow knowing with this in my mind that the Savior of the world died for me. He rose for me and that I can live differently now. Dear friend, if you prayed that with me, welcome to the family of God. And we're praying the same part of that prayer with you. That's what we ask of you too, Lord Jesus. Remind us tomorrow, as Paul reminded the Corinthian church, remind us tomorrow as we get out of bed, as we put our feet on the floor, you know what? I am a a Christian saved by grace, a believer who has been saved by the blood of Jesus. And I have great hope for the future. No matter what today holds, I know Jesus holds me and holds my future in his hands. And that is great comfort. Lord, would you remind us of that tomorrow and the next and from this day forward. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.